Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter. If you don't have your own copy of the Scriptures or if you're using one of ours this morning, you will find our text on page 1019. Second Peter chapter 3. This morning as we come to um, Peter's second letter to the church, we also come to his last letter. Shortly after writing what we have before us, Peter was martyred for the faith. You'll remember Peter was the man who pledged to never leave Christ, and yet he was also the one who abandoned him at his most dire hour of need. By God's grace, Peter was restored to the risen Christ after his crucifixion and resurrection and from then forward lived a life of faithfulness right until the very end. In fact, church history records that in his martyrdom, he was crucified by the Romans just like Jesus. And yet not just like Jesus. Because church tradition tradition also records that Peter could not bear the thought of being killed the same way that Jesus was. So he requested that in his crucifixion that he would be hung upside down. It's that apostle, one who was faithful to the end, that now writes to a group of Christians struggling under persecution, suffering attack from false teachers, and in danger of failing Christ, even as Peter himself did at one time. This morning, as we consider the message of 2 Peter, we see the apostle exhorting the church that they should be faithful to the end faithful to the end. Regardless of what is going on around them today, regardless of what is going around us in the world and in the church, we have a calling to be faithful to Christ even till the very end. Practically speaking though, how do we do that? Because surely the hymn writer is right, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. How are we to remain faithful to Christ to the end? How can we do that? What steps can we take to help ensure we are faithful to the end? This is what Peter writes to uh, the church in this second letter of his, and this is what we want to see this morning. So I encourage you uh, to follow along as I read from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The apostle writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning of creation." For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you, uh, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. In this letter, and specifically in this passage, Peter gives us both weighty and practical instruction on what to do, on how to go about pursuing a life that will be faithful to the end. And this morning we want to see four instructions that Peter gives to us towards this end this morning. First, we want to see this. As you strive to live a life of faithfulness to the end, you must stir your mind with Scripture. Stir your mind with Scripture. Peter makes the turn towards the final part of the letter with these words. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What are you reminding them of, Peter? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter wants his readers to be ready for those who would stand against them by remembering the predictions made about them by the prophets and the apostles. Why does he want them to remember these things? Because he wants to stir them up to faithfulness. He wants to stir up their mind to prepare them to live faithfully till the end. And his goal is to motivate them to be faithful specifically in the midst of this threat they are facing. And the means by which he does this is by reminding them of the words of Scripture. He says, remember the truths of God's Word that you've heard. Remember it and be stirred up by it. Now part of what makes this interesting is what Peter says just after this. Do you remember how when we looked at Titus, we said there was one of the best lines of the Bible, as Paul quoted from one of the prophets saying, Cretes are just, you know, rotten scoundrels, and yeah, that's right. Well, Peter gives us another such line like this as well. He says, uh, just after our passage, beginning at verse uh, 14, uh, excuse me, 15, count the patient of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, you can imagine who that is, right? Paul the Apostle, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom giving, given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. What is Peter saying there? He says, hey, read Paul's letters and it's okay. It's okay, struggle with it. Read it because there are some things in there that's hard to understand. So how many of you have ever read one of Paul's letters uh, perhaps Romans and this big sweeping argument and you've said, man, I just struggle to understand it. You're in good company because so did Peter. Okay, even the apostle says, boy, that Paul, I tell you, uh, uh, you know, sometimes he writes some things that are hard to understand, but that's okay because here's the point. Uh, listen to the rest of what Peter says. He says, again, verse 15, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these things. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
Do you see what Peter is saying there? Peter is saying just as some people take the other scriptures, in other words, the Old Testament, and they distort them and they twist them to, to, to roll out their false theology, so they also do that with the other scriptures, that is, what Paul the Apostle wrote. That's profound if, you, if you're catching it here because what Peter is saying is it's not just the Old Testament that we've had for a thousand years. No, it is also what Paul is writing that is the Word of God. Peter is exalting the writings of Paul the Apostle saying these are the other scriptures. They are the exact same in authority and weight and divine origin as the law, the Pentateuch, the writing, the prophets. And so here even... Even at the end of this New Testament age, Peter is given the clarity to see God is giving us more truth. Not just, uh, not just something temporary, not just something uh, uh, good, good wise teaching and yet tempted with human sinfulness. No, this is the very word of God. This is scripture coming to God's people. And so here even uh, within Peter's writing, we have this uh, this implicit argument for the authority and the reliability and the, the, the profitableness of the Old and New Testament. The whole Bible as God's Word. And Peter is telling them, not just with the Old Testament, but even now, not just with those scriptures, but even now with the new scriptures given, have your minds stirred by them. Now, isn't it amazing uh, and, and, and hopefully, hopefully you've, you, you've walked through and you've seen. Hopefully, uh, I have not tried to, to force this. I've not tried to put a square peg in a round hole. Hopefully, you have read this for yourself and you've seen that it is true. Isn't it amazing? Book by book, time after time, from the beginning until now of this series, we have seen one of the consistent themes of the Bible is how important the Bible is. Over and over and over again. Remember the scriptures. Remember the promise. Study the book. Read the book. Memorize the book. This is the message we have heard over and over and over again. And there are still some people today who do that. There are men and women, pastors, lay people, children who love the Bible and they soak their lives in it. But frankly, as a whole, that's not us. That's not our Christian culture in this Country, we have moved away from our spiritual forefathers when it comes to a deep and abiding love of God's Word. Why is this? I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps it's because we have so many different translations. It used to be that more or less everybody had the same book. Now I, I imagine there's probably at least five that are being read this way. I'm not saying it's inherently a bad thing. I just wonder if there was an unintended consequence to it. Maybe it's the fact that we don't just have one Bible in the home. You know, Martin Luther, uh, we heard uh, from earlier, he absolutely loved his Bible. He didn't just want a Bible, he wanted his Bible because he had been in it so long and he had read it so much that when he thought of a passage like 2 Peter 3, he could tell you the verse is on the right side of the page at the top. Or in Psalm 19, it begins on the left side at the bottom. He knew that book. Its pages were familiar. That The typeface was burned to his mind because he read day in and day out from the same copy. Maybe that has taught us to treat the Word of God lightly because I've got two Bibles in my car. I've got ten on my shelf. I've got two on my desk. And I've got one that I preach out of. 
I mean, I have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to copies of God's Word. And yet, and yet I'm convicted time and again. But why don't you just read it more often? It, they're not trophies to sit on a shelf. It is truth to be absorbed. Some will complain about the difficulty of reading. I, I, you know, I, I struggle with that. Well, lots of people in church history have struggled. Some people have actually been illiterate, and yet they have memorized the entire Bible because they've had their children read it to them who were literate. Uh, there was one pastor in the Chicago area who said that his grandfather, based upon the, the spacing of age, uh, he remembered his grandfather uh, in his 90s who had been a slave in the Civil War and had been freed, and he was illiterate. And yet he had his kids read him every day large chunks of the Bible to the point that he had some entire books completely memorized. Why? Because it was God's book, and he loved it. Some will argue, you know, this is a, this is a media-driven age. This is where we, we have visual images. Well, that's, that's true, but don't patronize God. I mean, how hard is it for the creator of the universe to say, I'll give them scripture once they invent the movie? Right? I mean, could he not have done that? Could he not have inspired the DVD edition? You know, the 2011, is it 1611 or whatever it is? Yeah, he could have done that. But what did he choose to do? He chose to use language. He chose to use words and sentences. He chose to give his word to his people that they might write it down and forever copy and transmit and translate. He gave us ideas frozen in a specific time, a specific language that we might still read those things and benefit from them and memorize them and meditate on them. This is how Peter says we are to be stirred towards faithfulness. Before he gets anything else, he says, you are stirred up in your mind. You are spurred on towards being faithful to the end by the very word of God. So, so this morning, even if we don't read well, there, we can get the Bible on CD. We can get buy it on if anybody has it. Cassette tape. It's still got a tape deck. It's still got an eight-track player. You can find anything on eBay. Okay. That there is no excuse for any of us, no matter how busy we are, no matter how difficult we are in terms of academics and study, to be getting God's Word into our lives. Because it is only in that way that our minds will be stirred for faithfulness the way that it should, even the difficult words of Paul sometimes. Peter says specifically that they are to be stirred in their faithfulness by remembering from the scriptures the prediction of scoffers. And in doing so, they are to be prepared for scoffers. This is the second thing that we see Peter tells them to do, uh, to prepare for a faithful life. Prepare for scoffers. Peter says in verse 3, Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all. So in other words, be stirred up to the writings, but remember this first of all, for the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Now, the scoffers are in the church that Peter's writing to. And he's telling them, remember, this was all foretold. This didn't catch God by surprise. This is not like God saying, man, I wish those guys would get out of there. He told you they were coming long ago. And notice what he says. He says, the scoffers were coming in the last days. 
Now, I know in television and on, uh, on television and pulpits, you sometimes hear people talk about looking for the last days and are we in the last days and what about the signs of the times? Well, the reality is the New Testament says beginning with Christ's resurrection, the new days, the, the last days have begun. That, that, it is his, that is his triumph at the cross over death and the grave and sin. That that explosion now has taken place whereby the kingdom is already uh, coming onto the world. We're already in the last days. So you don't have to look for the signs of the times. Peter and Paul and Jesus have said you're already in them. This is the last days. In Peter's day, it was already the last days. But notice what is predicted in these last days. It is the ridicule of scoffers. And notice what they say, verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Their argument is this. All of our, you know, Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, they all died. Uh, this is what it means by fell asleep. It doesn't really mean they're taking a nap. It means they died. They're gone. And nothing has ever changed from the beginning. It's always been this way. Now, what I find, frankly, amazing is writing about 1950 years ago, and the argument the scoffers were using is the same argument that we hear today. I mean, it's an amazingly modern argument, isn't it? That, 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 that we experience scorn for today. The law of nature is eternal and unchanging. People die and they stay dead. It's happened that way for thousands of years, for millions of years, and it will never change. Therefore, it makes no sense to believe in the resurrection of Christ or His return from glory. I mean, isn't that what we hear? Dead people don't come back to life. So why would Christ? And you even have some people who stand behind a pulpit like this, sometimes nicer pulpits than this. Claim to be Christian ministers and they tell their people it's not important whether or not you believe in the physical resurrection of Christ. It's not important that you believe that Christ physically came back from the dead. It's the spirit of Christ that needs to continue in the world, bringing peace and love and harmony. I could be wrong, but I think in one of those hard letters that, that Paul wrote, he said, if Christ be not raised from the dead, then we have nothing. We have nothing. And if Christ be raised back from the dead, why should we not believe He will one day return? Well, what does Peter say to this to these scoffers? He says this, he says, uh, beginning of verse 5, I believe, they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He says this, they purposely forget creation hasn't always been here. It had a beginning. It's not eternal like they presume it is. No, its regular normal existence came into being by a creator who established the natural order of things. God spoke and creation existed. That right there is the first flaw in their argument, that things have just always been this way. They haven't always been this way. They started this way. But secondly, he says they also forget that there was a time when the natural order of things stopped and were essentially reset. Again, you can't help but think of Japan and the footage of the, of the tsunami we saw coming uh, right into the coast, just tearing everything, swallowing up everything in its path. It was devastating. But imagine that happening a hundred times worse, a thousand times worse, all at once, all across the entire globe. That's what Peter reminds 
his readers and implicitly the scoffers in that church, remember when this happened? Remember when God sent the flood and He destroyed all things? In fact, all of creation on this world would have been, would have been completely in ruin were it not for the saving mercy of God through Noah and the ark He commanded him to build. God brought judgment for sin on the entire world in a matter of days. Now He's promised He will do it again through fire. And if He's done it once, there's no reason to believe He's not going to do it again. Scoffers have been heaping scorn on Christianity since, their, since the very beginning, Peter tells us. I mean, even here we see these first and second generation of Christians amazingly facing the same kind of derision that we face today. And so, loved ones, we cannot allow ourselves to be unsettled by these kinds of arguments. We cannot allow ourselves uh, to, to be tempted to believe that somehow God was not raised back from the dead and that therefore He will not be coming back again. The Scripture says that both the disciples themselves, Paul tells us at least 500 people at one time saw the risen Christ. They saw that it was not just a spirit. It was not just an idea. It was a glorified man of flesh and blood in whom they could touch and feel and have breakfast with. This is the one who rose again and promised that he will indeed come back. If you've believed the gospel that God has saved you through his shed blood, the shed blood of Christ, the judgment you deserve fell upon him on the cross, then why would you doubt the rest? How could you doubt the rest? If you've trusted in the gospel, part of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ. And if he's resurrected, then he is returning. Prepare for scoffers. They, they are here. They will continue to be here. They will continue to come. And yet, as Peter says, they are the ones who deny the truth of reality. But perhaps as we think about the return of Christ, perhaps you long for it. And perhaps you believe it's taking longer than you thought it would. Then like Peter told those first Christians in this letter, remember God's patience. This is the third thing that we can do to help ensure, to help strive for a life that is faithful to the end. Remember God's patience. You know, for the last 30 years, I have been hearing Christians say, you know, I'm just sure that it's this generation that will see the return of Christ. Some go even farther, and they'll try to set specific dates. Many Christians uh, were, uh, were taken up with Edgar uh, Wisenat's book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Anybody read that in 1988? Maybe? Heard of it? Saw it? Well, guess what? 1988 came and we're still here, right? Uh, but it was only a few years later when the Gulf War broke out in 1991 that people were asking the same questions. They were thinking, this is it. You know, watch Israel because, you know, if, boy, if those scuds land there, Christ is going to come back and uh, it's, it's going to be any moment. It didn't happen. Others have been more cautious. For example, Tim LaHaye has written an article that affirms again and again and again, at least in, in word, what Jesus himself says, that no man knows the day or the hour. And he ins he's insistent upon that. And yet, in the same article, he also says that doesn't mean that we can't set some parameters and set some limits to have an idea of when Christ 
will return. So much so that in fact that he writes this, quote, Our generation has more legitimate reasons for believing, believing that Jesus will return in this generation than any other previous generation. And he goes on to perform a bunch of exegetical jabberwocky to say he thinks it'll be around the year 2000. Well, Mr. LaHaye, we're still here 11 years out. It's kind of like saying, you know, Jesus said you can't know the day or the hour, but he didn't say you couldn't know the month or the year. That kind of misses the point, doesn't it? Like that kind of misses the point. And as I've gotten older and I've learned more about what the Bible says, about what's going on in the world, especially the global church, what amazes me is that as far as I can tell, the only people writing this kind of thing, the only people talking in this way are people that live in the West, in Europe and America. And that's striking to me because they're the ones that have had it great. I mean, as Christians, they have experienced not suffering, not persecution, not hardship. They have experienced blessing and ease of life. And yet they are the ones believing so fervently, it's it's us, it's our generation. We're going to see Christ return. Really? I can't help but think about those beyond the West, in the East, in the South, the global South, that have experienced suffering, that have experienced persecution. Christians in places like like Asia and Iraq and the Sudan, where suffering is a way of life. What, what must they think? What must their prayers be like? Surely it echoes that of the Apostle John at the end of Revelation when he sees the end of all things and he prays out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You can imagine for one who, who lives every day a life of misery simply because they say Jesus is Lord. They would say, oh, oh God, send your son back to end it all, to end the sin, to end the misery, to end the suffering and the persecution. Come that we might rejoice in his presence. And yet he does not come. Day after day, he does not come. So surely you can see why even in their day undergoing persecution, there would be a temptation to believe the scoffers that maybe he's not going to come. But then Peter says, no, 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 no. You have to remember God's patience. He says in verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, don't misunderstand. Peter's not saying that there's divine math goes on here, that it's literally a thousand years forever one day. No, it's, he's using a simile. He's simply saying what he says in verse 9. God doesn't reckon time the same way we do. I mean, He's infinite. He's been around forever. What seems like an eternity for us is like... Pfft, you know, a, a blip for him, you know, where we're saying, God, you know, you're going to come back in the next 50 years. And he's thinking, you know, you can't wait 10 seconds. You know, I mean, that, that's the kind of mindset that, uh, that, that, that separates us. And yet what he says is that it's more, even more amazing than that. God doesn't only reckon time the way we do, but he also has an amazing kindness that he is showing to us by his patience. When he comes, there will be no escape from his wrath. It's the end. And regardless of what people say, I don't think there's a second chance. I don't think that there's lost people that will survive His coming and they can repent against it. No, I think that Peter seems to be pretty clear. Paul elsewhere seems to be pretty clear. When Christ comes, that is the end. And, and if you have not 
trusted in Him, if you have not turned to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, there will be no escape from the wrath that you deserve. It will come like a thief. That means a time when no one expects. No one expects a thief to come. No one has a calendar that says, oh, next Friday we're going to be robbed. We might as well leave the doors unlocked so they don't bust through the windows. No, it doesn't, doesn't happen that way. They just show up and they're there. And you're wondering, where was, where's my stuff gone? Likewise, when Christ returns, no, no one's sitting out with a timetable saying, yeah, it's next week, so you know, don't fill the car up at, at $4 a gallon for gas. Uh, let's just sit and wait because He's going to show up. I mean, some people do that. They, they, they gather a few worldly possessions. They go up and sit on a hill and say, we know He's coming back in the next 30 days, so we're just going to rejoice and, and receive Him together. And, and the Bible says, no, it doesn't happen that way. You, you can't prepare in that way for His coming. When he does come, it will mean the end of creation. The end of a creation defiled by sin and marked by rebellion. And yet, in God not yet sending Christ to return, he's showing patience with sinners. He's not turned a deaf ear to his people who suffer. He's not turned a deaf ear to his people who are calling out for relief from their sufferings. He is being patient towards those who would otherwise suffer in eternity. In eternity. Forever. In hell. It is an amazing, it is an amazing grace from God. He is not biding his time. He is not delayed. He has not forgotten his promise. He has not forgotten us. In fact, quite the opposite. He is merciful and desiring many to come and turn to Christ. This should not only encourage us during difficult times, but loved ones, how much should this not cause us to make the best use of our time? If, if God is, is waiting to send Christ for us because He desires more to come in, should we not be about the business of seeing those come in? Should we not just have our souls burning with desire to see people hear the gospel and believe before the day comes and it's too late and there's no second chances? The last thing is we strive for a life that is faithful to the end, the last thing that we should do is this, in verses 11 through 14, we should let go of this world. We should let go of this world. From the letter as a whole, we get an image, a more clear picture of the false teachers facing these Christians. In chapter 2, verse 19, we see that these people exploited the doctrine of God's grace and their spiritual freedom in Christ. Why? Because in verse 2 and verse 14 of chapter 2, they do it in order to justify their own sinfulness. They do it specifically to justify the immoral indulgence of their sexual appetites, their distortion of the truth out of their love for money and their love for human praise. So if we had to summarize the lifestyle of these men, I think we could rightly say they love this world. They love this world and the things of this world. Their life was wrapped up in the here and now, the appetites of this world. And the temptation, the temptation for these Christians was to follow after them. The temptation is to be shaken by the scoffing and to live as if Christ is not coming back. Now, I forgot my cell phone or else I would have Googled it and I would have got you the exact quote. But it reminded me so much of one of these great uh, and famous atheists in England right now who, who, who paid to have on all of these buses running in London uh, a sign that said something along the lines of this, uh, there is no heaven or hell, so just relax and enjoy yourself in this life. And that's the temptation for Christians today 
for Christians in their day. Well, Christ, you know, maybe He's not really returning. Maybe He's not really coming to judge the living and the dead. Maybe it's not really important in eternity. So let's just have fun now. Let's just, let's just, re, let's just relax. Let's just, you know, loosen our ties. Don't worry about telling other people they're wrong because, you know, uh, after all, as, you know, Rob Bell's made clear, there's not really a hell. So, 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 so why bother preaching the gospel? Why bother striving for holiness? At the end of the day, we're all going to be with God. What does Peter say to that mindset? What does, the, what does he say to the false teachers who, who promoted that mindset through their love of the world? Peter said, the world that you love is going to burn. The world that you love so much is not going to be here forever. It's going to go up like smoke. Then where are you going to be? He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening? Have you ever thought about that? By our faithfulness, we can hasten the day of the Lord's return, verse 12, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says, why would you ever love this world and the pleasures of this world when one day it's going to all come to nothing? There's, no, there's not going to be uh, you know, internet. There's not going to be Xbox. There's not going to be all these things that so consume our time in the, in, the, in the eternity. And they're certainly not so valuable as to weigh them against the souls that would spend forever in hell. He says, why devote yourself to money when money is going to burn? Why devote yourself to power when there is one coming who holds all power? in the small of his hand? Why build your life with the praise of men when all that praise will one day be given to the king who is coming? Friends, the great lure for the church in this country, the great lure for us today it, that keeps us from God is a love of this world. The handwriting is on the wall. Our lives and our loves are so rooted in the here and now that it's hard for us to think about anything beyond it. I believe that it's a love for this world that keeps us as weak as we are as Christians. Let me give you an example. Iglesia Bautista El Calvario in Seymour, Indiana, which is, if my Spanish is not too rusty, the Calvary Baptist Church in Seymour, Indiana. In 2005, this SBC church was running about 50 people. And that Christmas, do you know how much they gave to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering? $10,000. How did they do that with 50 people? I'll tell you how they did it. They gave up Christmas. She said, it's not worth it. Supporting missions and the gospel going to the ends of the earth, it's, it doesn't compare to what we would spend on one another for Christmas. Now, I know some of you, because you're probably like me when I first read it, some of you immediately threw up 50 objections to why we should not abandon Christmas and still travel and do gift giving and spend more money than we ever sanely need to spend on a holiday that, that frankly at the end of the day has no basis in Christianity. Oh yes, we make Christ about Christmas and we celebrate His birth and that's wonderful. But we don't have to travel across the country to see family to do that. We don't have to spend hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars on credit, giving gifts to do that. We don't have to throw out feast after feast after feast with family and friends and family and friends in order to celebrate the birth of Christ. We don't have to do that in order to celebrate Christmas. But we do. Why? 
from the things of this world. And the reality is, I think, that the things of this world are keeping us from loving Christ the way that we should. Please understand, this is not, this is not about money. Money is an easy indicator of where our heart is, but this ultimately is not about money. Peter, following after Jesus, says that we are to be faithful as God's people in not loving this world and not investing our life in this world, but knowing there is a new world to come, and that is where we will spend forever, and that is where our investment should be. Money is simply an indicator of where our love is. If I, if I love my wife, then I'm not just going to tell her that. I'm going to lavish gifts on her. Not just birthday, not just anniversary, not just Christmas, not just sweetest day and every other uh, Hallmark holiday that, that, that we get to give gifts. And I, I'm going I'm to actually say, you know what, what, you know, I don't need the new tool set or whatever. What do you need to make your life easier? How can I, how can I, how can I pamper you? How, you know, how can I save enough money to just send you away for a couple days without me, without the kids, and you just go to a hotel and you just live it up and enjoy yourself and get some rest and serenity in your, in your mind and in your heart? That, that's the way I'm thinking because I love her, right? So how much do we love Christ? Well, it's not just with our money. It's with our time, with our investment. You know, no one tell you, we say, well, we got to give that tithe. Well, what about a tithe of your time? You ever give a tenth of your week to God? I haven't. I'll, just be, I'll, I'll confess this. I say, your pastor has never given a tenth of his time to God. Yes, I've been wrapped up in more than a tenth in preparing for this and other things, but that doesn't mean that, that it's been done as an act of worship to God. It doesn't mean that, that, that just me and God and Scripture and the Bible without worrying about sermon prep, just the cultivation of my own soul has been taken up with 10%. just hasn't happened. Why? Because I love this world too much. And I love the things of this world too much. And it is so easy to get distracted and wrapped up in those things and forget the reality that none of it matters. None of it matters in the age to come. And this is the very thing that, that Peter tells us. I, I, I think it is astonishing that the largest Protestant denomination in this country, us, Southern Baptists, that we send just over 5,000 missionaries cross-culturally around the world. Now, on paper, there's 16 million Southern Baptists. In attendance, it's probably closer to 9 million or 10 million. Okay? So out of, we'll, 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 we'll be generous. We'll just say 10 million. Out of 10 million Southern Baptists, we send out about 5,000 of us to cross-cultural missions. The entire country of South Korea... And I'm sure when you see him again, Pastor Joe will be able to tell you exactly what the population is and how big it is. I'm sure he knows all that now. They send out over 17,000 cross-cultural missionaries right now. That, that, that's a problem to me in my mind that I have a hard time reconciling. We live in a country that has, uh, it's the wealthiest in the world despite the trillions of dollars of debt. Uh, we, we, we have the biggest church buildings, we have the best Christian scholars, we write the best books, and yet the church in this country is on the decline. It, the, 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 the Christianity in America is not growing. It's dwindling. It's growing in South America and in Africa and in China where they have nothing. Could it be that we have succumbed just like just like the church that is written about in Revelation, that we have lost our first love? 
that we have, we have so enjoyed the blessings of God that we've said we'll take the gift and forget about the one who's given it to us? That we love the gift more than we love the giver? That we've exchanged a love for things rather than the, the love of one who made all things? I think so. I think we have, and I think that particularly for our culture, that call to just let go of the world is probably the hardest thing that we struggle with. And yet it lays, it lays at the very bottom of our relationship with God because if we can't let go of the things of this world, we're never going to cling to Him. You know, you know uh, we shared a couple, a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night, John Piper has this great little phrase, you'll never understand what prayer is for until you know that life is war. Outside the Bible, I don't think I've ever heard a more truthful statement. And he says, prayer is meant to be like the the walkie-talkie of the guy down in the trenches saying, we need covering fire, we need reinforcements, we need air support, send in the Marines for goodness sake, we're getting pounced here, and we need something. And God sends it. And and he'll, he'll equip his church to do the job he's called them to. But what we have done, we have, we, we, have, we have taken that wartime walkie-talkie and we have taken the mechanics apart and we've installed it in the wall in our house and now it's become an intercom. So as we crank back in the lazy chair and put our feet up, we say, can you send me some more Coke in? I'm running low on chips and salsa. It's getting a little cold. Can you bring me a blanket? I mean, is that our prayer life? I hate to say, but it's, it's mine. It is an indictment of us that we love our things more than we love God. And so Peter tells us, let go of the world. He says, when Christ returns, he is wanting, verse 14, he is wanting to find people who are without spot or blemish and at peace with one another. This world is passing away and Christ is returning. And what's it going to find? If you were, if you were, if you were a groom, and it was your wedding day. And you had, you had supplied your bride-to-be with, with everything she could possibly need to make herself look like the most beautiful bride in the world. And you show up ready to give yourself fully to this bride. And you find her making out with the groomsmen. How would that make you feel? I think I go in the corner and throw up. And yet when Jesus comes, is He going to find us as a bride adorned in holiness, longing with hearts only for Him, I said, you're going to find us off in the corner making out with the world. That's the wake-up call that all of us, from, from the person behind this sacred desk to parents raising up little kids that we must hear. And here's the thing. You, you can't make yourself love Christ more doesn't work that way. Your heart will say no. Your, the natural inclination of the heart is to love the things of this world. But here is, here is the beauty of it. The very thing that, that Peter is trying to get us to see, if we will just take our eyes off of everything else, don't worry about those scoffing at us, don't worry about the things of this world that are wanting to be burned up, if we will stop engaging the philosophies of the day and the ideas of the day through, 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 through so much television and media and blogging. And I'm not saying don't, don't engage those things, don't hear me. What I'm saying is you better be soaking your mind in this more than anything else than what's going to happen. 
Christ is going to be held up before our eyes in all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his excellence. And you know what's going to happen? We'll fall in love with him. The, the more that we see Christ for who he is, the more that we see the great love that he has shown us, our God will automatically begin to cultivate a deeper sense of love within us. So God is not saying, you guys are terrible, you need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't. You can't you know, love Christ by working hard to love him. You don't just say, now we're going to love Christ today. It doesn't work that way. But it is work. It is work to unplug, to disengage, to turn the things off, to plug your ears to all the critics, and to say, I'm going to get along with God, and I'm going to pray like Moses. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Because I know I will, the more I see, the more I see how much you are worth, how intrinsically valuable you are, then the more I will love you, and the less I will love this world. Friends, that's how we strive, and that's how we will succeed to be faithful to the end. It's loving Christ by seeing who He is. And the way to do that is to have our minds stir with Scripture, to prepare for the scoffers who will mock us, to not get fixed on the difficulties in this world, but by remembering God's patience and by just letting go of it all, letting go of this world and our strange and sinful appetites. Father, we know that your son is worth it. God, we know from what we have believed in the gospel that he is worth our love. And yet, God, we find it so difficult. So, so difficult to love him the way that we should. God, you've given us very practical instruction. And yet, God, we need your spirit to move in our minds and our hearts. That we won't just walk out of these doors and forget what we've heard. God, help us to see Christ for who He is and help us, God, to, to love Him the way He deserves to be loved. And God, may that be seen in tangible differences in the way we live our life and in the way this church desires and strives to love and to serve You. Do this for Christ's sake. Amen.